It is April 1901, and the U.S. government is rounding up the population of Astoria, Oregon, due to bubonic plague. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. In today's episode, we get a new look at an oft-told Oregon tale, the 1901 Plague Roundup in Astoria. Historian, Doug Kane Crispin. I spent a lot of time looking at old newspaper clippings, researching for this podcast. I love the click, 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 click of the microfilm as it whizzes past. The room dark except for the dusty projection of the written tales and whispers of the long dead. So when a remodeling at the Multnomah County Library main branch forced me to use a particularly dusty ancient microfilm reader, I was like a pig in shit. Nestled in an alcove in a temporarily open sub-basement, an alcove in a sub-basement I must now admit that I have no interest ever in returning to. I came across a seemingly unconnected collection of clippings left by a previous researcher. Realizing these notes were about Oregon history, I loaded them up and took a look. What I found was from the pages of a disappeared, distinguished professor of history at Warrington Community College, a Professor Danforth. But even to this date, I cannot wrap my mind entirely around the occurrence, for these clippings and other materials are superficially isolated, yet when placed together in a timeline with, of course, an extrapolation on wide, blank spaces left therein, the results are maddening. But some shit went down, and it all begins at that shunned ancient town of decay and desolation, Astoria, Oregon. Today, most visitors find Astoria to possess one very strong impression of poignantly disagreeable quality, reinforced by the most nauseous fishy odor imaginable. And certainly the professor's papers so strongly reinforced such a quality in me that an unconscious shudder overtook me as I scanned them. Of particular interest was a photostat of a journal entry from Robert Olmsted that was originally from the archives of the Elsie Historical Society. The notes before me contained a rambling, expository letter by Professor Danforth, which is a bit too disturbing to reveal in this broadcast. In the message, the professor attempted to connect these disparate clippings and the Olmsted Journal. The professor was obviously suffering from some sort of psychosis, but after wading through his rambling and disjointed introduction, I was able to assemble an adequate timeline of my own from these curious documents. I have been unable to follow up, on some of the queerer points that I shall reveal. 
In February 1901, an apparently insane sailor from the crew of the British bark Gulfstream, which was anchored at Astoria, lit three fires in the cargo hold of the vessel. According to the Oregonian, he had also placed an item of peculiarly white golden jewelry on each pyre. Something akin to a tiara. He had scrawled some graffiti on the walls about the look or the curse. When discovered by the crew, the man was quite naked, dancing with a large knife around the fires, sporting a look so crazed that his eyes were described as nearly protruding from his face with lunacy. Luckily, the rest of the Gulfstream crew was awakened quickly enough that the six-foot flames did not completely engulf the vessel. The demented man was subdued and taken from the bark in chains. The next commentary described the mid-March 1901 arrival of the steamer Danube, a vessel originating from Hong Kong, which was bringing 612 Chinese men to labor in Portland. The ship was stopped at Astoria for inspection by the local authorities, partly due to the squalor conditions on the packed boat, but also due to the reports of plague that ran rampant through the passengers. All of the crew and travelers were taken from the vessel for quarantine, and the Danube was burned in the Columbia's brackish waters. A note in Professor Danforth's hand, written on the clipping, notes that he was never able to determine the fate of the Danube's crew or voyagers. All trace of them had been expunged from the official record. The last yellowed clipping, dated March 28, 1901, was a peculiar pronouncement taken by the city of Astoria to pair the propagation and proliferation of plague in the city. The message announced that in order to reduce the foothold that bubonic plague has established here in Astoria, we urge upon you the necessity of poisoning all the rats about your house as soon as possible. Rats are the most active agents of spreading the disease abroad. We must fight the rats. I had heard about the 1901 plague outbreak in Astoria, and it had always been quickly and easily dismissed, despite what at the time was a swift and large response from the state and federal governments. The episode is so known and quickly passed over that it hardly seemed to warrant a kick-ass moniker. But the curious photostat from the Elsie Historical Society contained in Professor Danforth's clipping collection put the episode in a new, appalling light. Apparently, the journal had never been seen before by any other researcher, other than the professor, the whole time that it was held in the society. Robert Olmsted's journal entry of his April 1901 visit had me rethinking my entire impression of Astoria. In 1901, officials of the federal government made a strange and secret investigation of certain conditions in the ancient Oregon seaport of Astoria. The public first learned of it in mid-April, when a vast series of raids and arrests occurred, followed by the deliberate burning and dynamiting 
under suitable precautions, of an enormous number of crumbling, worm-eaten, and supposedly empty houses along the abandoned waterfront. Uninquiring souls let this occurrence pass as one of the measured, thorough responses of a war on illegal immigration and the resulting communicable contamination. Keener news followers, however, wondered at the prodigious number of arrests, the abnormally large force of men used in making them, and the secrecy surrounding the disposal of the prisoners, resulting from an outbreak of plague. No trials or even definite charges were reported, nor were any of the captives seen thereafter in the regular jails of the nation. There were vague statements about disease and concentration camps, and later about dispersal in various naval and military prisons and medical laboratories, but nothing positive ever developed. Astoria itself was left almost depopulated. Complaints from many liberal organizations about the outbreak survivors, including one from women's suffrage champion Abigail Scott Dunaway, were met with long, confidential discussions, and representatives were taken on trips to certain camps and prisons. As a result, these societies became surprisingly passive and reticent. Newspaper men were harder to manage, but seemed largely to cooperate with the government in the end. Only one paper, a tabloid always discounted because of its wild policy, mentioned the United States Navy's Holland submarine that discharged torpedoes downward into the marine abyss just beyond the Columbia Bar. Yet even this military action did not seem too far-fetched a treatment, considering the reputation of Astoria, Oregon, at the turn of the 20th century. According to Professor Danforth, Oregonians had been muttering a great deal among themselves about dying in half-deserted Astoria for nearly a century, and nothing new could be wilder or more hideous than what they had whispered and hinted years before. Many things had taught the coastal Oregonians secretiveness, and there was now no need to exert pressure on them. Besides, they really knew very little, for wide, isolated wetlands, desolate and unpeopled, kept neighbors out of Astoria on the landward side. But a few brave souls did speak. The journal of Robert Olmsted dares the reader to look at the turn of the century Astoria and the events of April 1901. They had no faces to show They called it the Big Epidemic of 1901, and it resulted in over half the folks of Astoria carried off by the federal law enforcers. The authorities were never able to admit what the trouble was, but it was very convenient to blame it on some foreign disease brought from China or somewhere by the shipping it surely was bad enough 
There were riots over it, and all sorts of ghastly doings that I don't believe ever got outside of town. And it left the place in awful shape. And Astoria never really came back from it. Besides, what was found might possibly have more than one explanation. I do not know just how much of the whole tale has been revealed even by me, and I have many reasons for not wishing to probe deeper, for my contact with this affair has been closer than that of any other layman, and I have carried away impressions which are yet to drive me to drastic measures. It was I who fled frantically out of Astoria in the morning hours of April the 2nd, 1901, and whose frightened appeals for government inquiry and action brought on the whole reported episode. I was willing enough to stay mute while the affair was fresh and uncertain, but now that it is an old story, with public interest and curiosity gone, I have an odd craving to whisper about those few frightful hours in that ill-rumored and evilly shadowed seaport of death and blasphemous abnormality. The mere telling helps me to restore confidence in my own faculties, to reassure myself that I was not simply the first to succumb to a contagious nightmare hallucination. It helps me, too, in making up my mind regarding a certain terrible step which lies ahead of me. Reports of what happened in Astoria in April 1901 are strangely hard to come by. In September 1901, the Oregon State Hospital issued a report, Plague Conditions in Northwest Oregon and Recommendations, confirming that something happened, perhaps disease-related. While surely there were footholds of the disease in Astoria, in its prime it had been a major shipping hub, disease was a convenient truth for Astoria, then a decrepit town, forming a squalid sea of decaying roofs and sagging, uneven buildings, which had become an exaggerated case of civic degeneration. Coastal Oregon could not hide its disgust at a community slipping so far down the cultural scale. But what Robert Olmsted claims to have witnessed that night in 1901 could hardly be addressed to the public by the powers that be, for even Olmsted himself found it difficult to retell those cursed events that transpired as he visited ghoulish Astoria. The Columbia River Bar is one of the deadliest in the world. 
boats on their way to the port of Portland or elsewhere up the Columbia must be carefully guided over the bar by specially trained bar pilots. Before the Army Corps of Engineers began to dredge the Columbia's channel in the 1930s and thus alter the bar, it was particularly dangerous and mysterious. Some of the old-timers tell about the sandy bar pre-Corps. It's well above water a good part of the time, and never much below it, but at that you could certainly not call it an island. The story is there's a whole legion of devils seen sometimes on that bar, sprawled about or darting in and out of some kind of holes near the top. It's a rugged, uneven bar, a good bit out, and toward the end of shipping days, Sailors used to make big detours just to avoid it. That is, sailors that didn't hail from Astoria. One of the yarns spun locally was that a legendary Hudson's Bay Company merchant, Old Captain Marsh, was supposed to land on the bar sometimes at night when the tide was right. Maybe he did, for in my investigations I heard it said that the sandy formation was very interesting, and it's also been written that he was looking for pirate loot and maybe even finding it. There were wild rumors of Marsh dealing with demons out there. I guess on the whole, it was really the captain that helped solidify the evil reputation to the Columbia Bar. That April night, I sat under the cupola of the Commodore Hotel in Astoria and watched the growing civic anxiety taking place. The tide had turned and was coming in now, I was glad of that tide, for at high water the fishy smell might not be so bad. That awful April night. Far out, beyond the breakwater, was the dim, dark line of the Columbia Bar. And as I glimpsed it, I could not help thinking of all the hideous legends I had heard on my short stay in profane and unhallowed Astoria. Legends which portrayed this sandy stretch as a veritable gateway to realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. Then, without warning, I saw the intermittent flashes of light on the distant bar. They were definite and unmistakable, and awakened in my mind a blind horror beyond all rational proportion. My muscles tightened for panic flight, held in only by a certain unconscious caution of half-hypnotic fascination. And to make matters worse, there now flashed forth from the lofty cupola of the Commodore Hotel, which loomed up to the northeast behind me, a series of analogous, though definitely spaced gleams, which could be nothing less than an answering signal. It was then that the most horrible impression of all was borne in upon me, the impression which destroyed my last vestige of self-control and sent me running frantically southward past the yawning black doorways and officially staring windows of that deserted and slippery nightmare street. For at a closer glance, 
I saw that the moonlit waters between the bar and the shore were far from empty. They were alive with a teeming horde of shapes swimming inward toward the town. And even at my vast distance, and in my single moment of perception, I could tell that the bobbing heads and flailing arms were alien and aberrant in ways scarcely to be expressed or consciously formulated. I saw them, high from my vantage point in that dingy boarding house. I witness hordes of them, swarms of them, all over the bar and swimming upstream and into the Columbia River. And then they came ashore. Ah, they came onto the land. I saw them. I saw them with my own eyes. One of them passed close to my vantage inside an abandoned and decrepit shop's doorway. There were footsteps and guttural sounds choked by a sudden rise in the fishy odor. The gait of this figure was so odd that it sent a chill through me, for it seemed to me that the creature was almost hopping. I did hear some croaking and clattering sounds far off. The fishy odor, dispelled for a moment by some merciful breeze, now closed in again and was maddening in its intensity. There was another sound, too, a kind of wholesale colossal flopping or pattering which somehow called up images of the most detestable sort. These beasts or creatures or devils or whatever they were joined with the inhabitants of this storied town so intermingled I could not tell landlubber from seafarer. As they reached the broad open space where I had had my first disquieting glimpse of the moonlit water, I could see them plainly only a block away and was horrified by the bestial abnormality of their faces and dog-like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground, while another figure, robed and tiaraed, seemed to progress in an almost hopping fashion. As this mockery of a mob was approaching, I had to flee my hiding point, and better judgment momentarily captured my fleeting sanity, and I found I had unconsciously assumed a mimicking, lumbering, and blundering bearing towards a nearby darkest thicket. As some of the figures turned to look in my direction, I was transfixed with fright managed to preserve the casual, shambling gait I had assumed. To this day, 
I do not know whether they saw me or not. If they did, my stratagem must have deceived them, for they passed on across the moonlit space without varying their course. Meanwhile, croaking and jabbering in some hateful, guttural patois I could not identify. The stench waxed overpowering, and the noises swelled to a bestial babble of croaking, baying, and barking without the least suggestion of human speech. That flopping or pattering was monstrous. I could not look upon the degenerate creatures responsible for it. I would keep my eyes shut till the sounds receded towards the east. The horde was very close now. The air foul with their hoarse snarlings, the ground almost shaking with their alien rhythmed footfalls. My breath nearly ceased to come, and I put every ounce of will into the task of holding my eyelids down. I am not even yet willing to say whether what followed was a hideous actuality or only a nightmare hallucination. The latter action of the government, after my frantic appeals, would tend to confirm it as a monstrous truth. But could not an hallucination have been repeated under the quasi-hypnotic spell of that ancient haunted and shadowed town of Astoria? Such places have strange properties and the legacy of insane legend might well have acted on more than one human imagination amidst those dead, stench-cursed streets and huddles of rotted roofs and crumbling steeples. Is it not possible that the germ of an actual contagious madness lurks in the depths of that shadow over Astoria? Where does madness leave off and reality begin? I must try to tell what I thought I saw that night under the mocking yellow moon. Saw surging and hopping down Marine Drive in plain sight in front of me as I crouched among the wild brambles of that desolate railway cut. Of course, my resolution to keep my eyes shut had failed. It was foredoomed to failure. For who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisomely past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away? It was the end for whatever remains to me of life on the surface of this earth, of every vestige of mental peace and confidence in the integrity of nature and of the human mind. Nothing that I could have imagined would be in any way comparable to that demonic, blasphemous reality that I saw, or believe I saw. I have tried to hint what it was in order to postpone the horror of writing it down boldly. Can it be possible 
that this planet has actually spawned such things? That human eyes have truly seen as objective flesh what man has hitherto known only in febrile fantasy and tenuous legend? And yet, I saw them in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleating, surging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that nameless, whitish golden metal and some were strangely robed and one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers and had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. I think their predominant color was a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish, with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed at the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs, sometimes on four. I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices clearly used for articulate speech held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. <gasps> the inhabitants of Astoria, Oregon were blasphemous fish frogs living and horrible genetically inbred with these monsters from the sea. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have shown only the least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting. The first I had ever had.
listening, Ass Kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh, with a little help from H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, and April Fools. April Fools. Club Club. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can also pick up Oregon History merchandise, learn about upcoming Oregon History events, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And coming up on May 11th, 2012 at 7 p.m., Kick-Ass Oregon History is proud to partner with Fifth Avenue Cinema to present The Seventh Day, a PSU student film about the May 1970 confrontation between the Portland police and a bunch of hippie protesters. We will enjoy the film, listen to a few speakers, and have live sitar by Josh Feinberg to keep you mellow, man. There'll be beer and wine available for sale and the best popcorn in town. Fifth Avenue Cinema is located at 510 Southwest Hall, and the program's only five bucks. Why don't you come on down on Friday, May 11th at 7 p.m for the seventh day. Just don't partake of that funny hand-rolled cigarette Mr. Kent Crispin is passing around. He was raised by hippies. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.